So on the evening of September 30th, 1938, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, just returned from meeting with Hitler, made his way from Buckingham Palace to Downing Street and entered the building. Someone suggested at the time that he make a statement to the enthusiastic crowd assembled outside. Opening a window, Chamberlain announced, my good friends, this is the second time in our history that there has come back from Germany to Downing Street peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Just days earlier, the British Navy had been mobilizing in preparation for war with Germany and London had begun evacuations in anticipation of aerial bombardment. But now the British public breathed a sigh of relief as Chamberlain proudly displayed the Munich Agreement that bore his own signature, as well as Hitler's, Mussolini's, and French Prime Minister's Edouard Daladier's. And this granted Hitler the right to peacefully annex the Sudetenland, the westernmost region of Czechoslovakia, home to three million ethnic Germans. The Munich crisis, came only six months after Britain had also allowed Hitler to annex Austria. But once this had been accomplished, the Czech government knew that the Sudetenland would be next, and relations between Czechoslovakia and Germany had quickly deteriorated. But if the two countries went to war, then Britain and France would be required to militarily intervene against Germany. So as Sherman and Czech troops began to mobilize, Chamberlain, desperate to maintain peace, agreed to meet with Hitler at Munich to discuss a possible compromise to war. Without consulting the Czechoslovakian leaders, Chamberlain and several of the neighboring heads of state agreed to Hitler's demands that Czechoslovakia cede the Sudetenland to Germany. And this was then formalized in the Munich Agreement. Chamberlain then flew home, believing that he had procured peace for our time. However, just six months later, Chamberlain would find himself denouncing the German seizure of the Czech capital of Prague. And then another six months after that, German troops would be invading Poland and Chamberlain would be declaring war against Germany. It's been over 80 years now since Chamberlain met with Hitler at Munich. And even after all this time, we're so familiar with these events that the word appeasement can be referenced without any further historical context and still usher to mind black and white images of servile British politicians cravenly kowtowing to Hitler. And this view emerged fairly quickly, being cemented in the popular imagination, as well as the historical literature, as early as July of 1940, with Michael Foote's Guilty Men thesis. Appeasement in 1938 became defined as the deliberate surrender of small nations in the face of Hitler's blatant bullying. And Winston Churchill, whose bulldogged opposition to Hitler became the symbol of anti-appeasement, he defined it more generally as the act of, quote, one who feeds a crocodile, hoping it will eat him last, unquote. And since World War II, US politicians have reached for the lesson of Munich to defend every foreign conflict that the United States has entered into. To quote Christopher Hitchens, it's become the go-to slogan whenever, quote, some piece of American foolishness needs to be defended overseas, unquote. And the senior vice president and director of studies with the Council on Foreign Relations has recently warned us that we must look back to Munich as we look forward to projecting American might abroad. He says, quote, it is worth remembering the Munich Agreement as we survey potential threats around the globe today. 
China is a growing military power that is challenging the territorial claims of its neighbors in Northeast and Southeast Asia. Iran seeks to become a nuclear power, a development that could upend the geopolitical order in the Middle East. Elsewhere, Munich has been referenced by the Serbs in 2007, the Japanese against China, Israel in opposition to the Iranian nuclear plan, and over the Russian occupation of Crimea. When Peter Hitchens was recently asked in an interview why he had written the book Phony Victory, the World War II Illusion, he responded, quote, I was increasingly tired of my country rushing into wars of choice, such as in Iraq and in Libya, and the argument always being that the threat which we faced was a new Hitler, that the leader who wanted to mount the attack was a new Churchill, and that anybody who opposed this attack was a feeble, umbrella-waving Neville Chamberlain who therefore didn't need to be listened to. The whole model of what I call Munich Syndrome, the whole model of 1938 to 1939 as a pattern for going to war seems to me to have been lodged in the public mind and the mind of politicians in a way that is dangerous." Unquote. But not only do we suffer from Munich Syndrome, thoughtlessly cutting and pasting Munich out of the past and into the present, but we are allowed and encouraged to misapply it because we also have no idea what actually happened in the 1930s. To quote Peter Hitchens again, quote, we have created a myth about the Second World War based on a number of misapprehensions and mistakes about what actually happened in World War II. We have created an overly simplistic narrative around the foreign relations between Britain, France, and Germany that completely fails to provide necessary context to the situation on two counts. First, it fails to put British and French policy in 1938 within the context of their foreign policy of the 20s and 30s. And second, it also fails to take into account the greater geopolitical situation outside of Western Europe, as though Germany, Czechoslovakia, Britain, and France were the only countries that mattered in the lead-up to Munich. So what I would like to do here, then, is present a more complex analysis of these events than the popular guilty men narrative that places a moral culpability on the British politicians who attempted to negotiate with Hitler. <clears throat> so as far as the historical context is concerned, obviously we have to remember that 1938 was within living memory of World War I. Just over one million British had died in the war, and in France it was nearly two million. This memory absolutely helped to shape public opinion and thus their foreign policy. The British and French governments were not dictatorial regimes that could simply order their young men into an unpopular war. And if the government felt that war was necessary, then they had to sell it to their people. And even if they could convince their populations to mobilize, due to the memory of World War I, there was very little chance that their people would be willing to assault entrenched enemy positions if it required them to take on massive casualties. And if there had been any lesson that countries had drawn from World War I, it was that the defender behind fortifications was in a far superior position to the one attacking. Add to this then the history of British and French foreign policy in the 20s and 30s, and the policy towards Hitler begins to become more understandable. Often we, we skip over this period as though foreign policy stopped between World War I and the rise of the Nazis, but actually Britain had, achieved, um, had actively engaged in a multi 
nation coalition against the Bolsheviks in Russia. Uh, they committed nearly 60,000 troops and a half million dollars. While this intervention successfully prevented Poland from falling to the Soviets, the British intervention in Russia was a disaster and absolutely failed to oust the Bolsheviks from power. So the British government ultimately decided to compromise on a policy of containment, being content with merely preventing further Soviet expansion. <coughs> Excuse me. And then in 1922, Britain found itself nearly going to war with Turkey over the Chanak crisis. Turkey had been one of the defeated countries in World War I, and like the other defeated central powers, their empire had been dismantled and their military limited. However, soon afterwards, a wave of nationalism took hold over Turkey, and they began a process of rearmament and expansionism in an attempt to reincorporate ethnic Turks back into Turkey. And this led then to a very bloody and brutal war with the Greeks, and nearly led to war with Britain when Turkey moved against British and French troops occupying the Dardanelles. However, with World War I so recently concluded, the Prime Minister, Lloyd George, could not get the British public or the British military to support him in pursuing war against the Turks. Furthermore, the British Commonwealth, particularly Canada, asserted their autonomy and absolutely refused to participate if war was declared. And in fact, one of the very, very few people that did support Lord George's call for war was Winston Churchill. And the crisis ended when Turkey, having managed to defeat the Greeks, then agreed to a negotiated settlement with Britain and limited territorial claims. The pro-war British politicians were humiliated by their inability to militarily throw their weight around and the need for compromise, but it had worked and Turkish expansion was ended. Because Britain and France couldn't count on their young men or colonies to engage in an offensive war, and that interventionist policies had failed in the USSR, while negotiations had successfully averted war with Turkey, goes a long way in helping to explain why in the face of German rearmament, Britain and France pursued an active, defensive military policy while negotiating over political and territorial concessions. Another point to consider is that during the interwar period, Britain and France experienced two economic crashes. We always remember the 1929 Great Depression that hit the United States, and we often hear about the hyperinflation that occurred in Weimar, Germany but Britain and France were also hit. The downturn was so bad that they defaulted on their war debt to the United States. And while some people criticized Britain for not spending more on rebuilding the military, the fact is that they had very, little, very limited funds for such a program. And in fact, once war was declared against Germany, it was only a year later that the British ambassador to the US very bluntly announced to an assembly of journalists in New York, well boys, Britain's broke. It's your money we want. The US would then basically fund the entire British war effort from 1941 onwards. But back in the 1930s, after their default, there was every reason to fear the possibility of a further economic downturn. And yet despite these financial difficulties, Throughout the period of 1934 to 1939, Britain still did begin a rearmament program and increased military spending. Another aspect of Britain's rearmament program that often comes under criticism is their decision to build up their navy and air force rather than an offensive continental army. But again, due to the financial restraints as well as their previous foreign policy, it only made sense to focus their resources 
on a military built around containment with the plan that if they were to engage in war with Germany, the Air Force and the Navy would be used to enforce an embargo on Germany, while a complementary British expeditionary force would perform the perfunctory role on the continent, providing assistance to the French army. And that brings us to the French then. France had also engaged in its own interventionist attempts in the 1920s. In 1922, Germany had begun to default on its reparation payments to the Allies, and in response, France and Belgium invaded Western Germany and seized the industrial region of the Ruhr Valley, making it even more difficult for Germany to pay the reparations, but giving France direct control over the German coal production. However, at this point, German monetary inflation turned into hyperinflation, which resulted in financial and political chaos throughout the country. And many of France's former allies looked on with grave concern as riots and left and right wing coup attempts broke out in Germany. And reports of French troops killing German civilians made headlines in American newspapers. Eventually, under pressure from Britain and America, France agreed to a renegotiation of the reparation payments and evacuated the Ruhr. But the occupation had caused many of France's allies to see France as vengeful and unconcerned with maintaining European peace and stability. Britain began to distance itself from France, fearing being dragged into a continental intervention that would earn them American censure. And this, coupled with the French economic downturn, was yet another reason why in the 1930s, France, following Britain's example, also began to focus on a policy of German containment. And an important piece of this containment policy, then, was the Maginot Line. And it's popular today to make fun of the Maginot Line, as though it was an antiquated strategy that failed to reflect contemporary technological and strategic advances. But in reality, it did what it was supposed to do. It was designed to funnel any German advance into the north through Belgium, where French and British mobile forces could join the Belgians and head off German invasions. And the French reliance on fortifications at this time was also not unique to them. The Germans began building their own line of fortifications in the west and the east. There was the Finnish Mannerheim line, Czech fortification lines around Prague, Dutch and Italian lines, and the Soviets were hastily trying to throw one up along their western border just prior to the German invasion. French defenses were actually so intimidating that as late as October of 1939, the year before the German invasion, the German war plan was limited to what they thought would be a bloody invasion of Holland and Belgium. And they didn't think they'd be ready for an actual invasion of France until 1942, two whole years later. The Germans didn't officially change that plan until just six months before the invasion. And the point here is just that Hitler's conquest of Europe reflected neither an adherence to some grand strategy of domination nor a failure of the French overall strategy. The Germans seized opportunities as they presented themselves, and these could have gone horribly wrong at numerous points, all the way up until the uh, British evacuation at Dunkirk. So the Allied plan for containing Germany in 1938 was actually a very reasonable policy. But what made this containment policy difficult was that France and Britain were not having to contend with just Germany. And that brings me to my second point that the popular discussion of appeasement and Munich ignores the greater political situation outside of Western Europe. So throughout the 1930s, Britain and France were having to deal with numerous threats, not just from foreign nations, but also from within their own empires. 
And with the limited resources at their disposal, in no small part due to the recent depression, Britain and France had to evaluate and prioritize these threats. And for Britain, prioritizing really meant that they could either attempt to defend the, um, the empire or defend the European continent, but not really both. Throughout this period, Britain was having to compromise over imperial crises in Ireland, India, Egypt, and Palestine. And meanwhile, outside of the empire, the Soviet Union loomed over Eastern Europe and threatened British control in Central and East Asia. Unrest in China threatened to drag the British into war there. And Japan had now built up the third largest navy in the world and was threatening the British holdings in the Far East and the South Pacific. And it was paramount that British politicians and diplomats figure out how to not be forced into fighting on multiple fronts at the same time. And with regards to the threat in the Pacific, historian Jeremy Black has noted that, quote, the policy of negotiating with the Axis focused on Germany because it was felt that Japan would be cautious if peace was maintained with Hitler. This was a reasonable view, at least insofar as Britain and its determination to preserve its colonies was concerned, unquote. Over in the French Empire, they were having to deal with nationalist uprisings in French Indochina and from the Berbers in North Africa. And they were also having to spend vast sums to increase their navy in order to face off Italian expansionism, which threatened southern France, as well as its colonial possessions around the Mediterranean, in the Middle East, and Africa. And then on France's southern border, civil war in Spain erupted in 1936, threatening to drag in other European nations, including the Soviet Union, Germany, and Italy, who were using it as a proxy war. So all of this required for the French to further invest money, manpower, and compromise in order to ensure that these didn't all become conflagrations. And this brings us finally to Czechoslovakia and to its position in Europe in 1938. The borders of Western Europe had been guaranteed in the Treaty of Locarno, but things were far less stable in Eastern and Central Europe. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine, Austria, Hungary, Yugoslavia, and Czechoslovakia had only recently been carved out of Germany, Austria, Hungary, and the former Tsarist Russia at the end of World War I. And although the victorious allies had genuinely tried to create workable borders for these countries that would hopefully encourage some level of national stability. It was so politically complicated throughout the region that it was simply impossible for them to reflect genuine ethnic or cultural self-determination. So these newly minted countries quickly took the initiative on themselves and set about rearranging the post-World War I borders by seizing territories granted to their neighbors. Poland, for example, engaged in no fewer than six wars between 1918 and 1920 with the Baltic states, Ukraine, and the Soviet Union. By 1922, Ukraine and Georgia would cease to exist altogether. And it's easy for us today to imagine that Czechoslovakia and Poland were just passive recipients of Hitlerian aggression, but they had their own expansionistic interests at this time. In fact, in 1938, Poland, Hungary, and Romania all joined in with Germany in annexing regions from Czechoslovakia. And then in 1939, when Poland was invaded by Germany, the USSR and the Slovak Republic also invaded and took what they deemed was their fair share. 
Eastern and Central Europe's borders did not reflect a natural status quo, but was instead an untenable peace created by the Western European nations. And this included Austria and the Sudetenland, which had previously been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire prior to 1918 and the collapse of the empire. However, as the empire was dismantled, the various ethnic regions began vying for autonomy, and the Germans who lived in the western region of the empire declared themselves the independent republic of German Austria. But as the Allies redrew the European map, portions of this Republic of German Austria were redistributed to its neighbors, including the Sudetenland and its population of three million Germans, who were then placed under the control of the newly formed Czechoslovakia. There was a great deal of resentment at this, and in 1918, German Austria requested that they be allowed to unite with Germany. But this was blocked by the Allies in the Treaty of Saint Germain, which also forced them to officially drop the German part of their name and to go simply by the Republic of Austria. And this is why then in 1938, it was not considered out of the blue aggression for Germany to try to annex Austria or the Sudetenland. And in fact, when Hitler began annexing Austria into Germany, it was generally popularly received in Austria, and many in Britain even saw it as an inevitable correction of the post-World War I map. Historian Tim Bouverie notes that, quote, the truth was that the British government had written off Austria sometime before. Austria was regarded as a legitimate German interest, and the impossibility of preserving her independence short of an all-out war was recognized by almost everyone. The chief British concern was not, therefore, that the Anschluss should be prevented, but that it should occur peacefully. And this is the important point that applies not just to Austria, but then also to the Sudetenland. Although the Munich Agreement is often represented as Britain and France abandoning Czechoslovakia, even if British politicians had decided to oppose Germany, as we've already discussed, they were neither financially nor militarily in a position to stop them. And when Hitler began to make moves towards the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, the Soviet Union was the one country that was actually in a position to militarily intervene. And they eagerly did reach out to France and Britain to discuss a joint intervention. But these talks didn't go very far because it would have required Russia to march through Poland and Romania, both of whom believed that Russian military intervention was just a cover for conquest of Eastern Europe, which is exactly what did in fact happen then when Britain and France eventually allied with the Soviets over the German invasion of Poland. And in the end, victory in World War II meant ultimately that while Germany was defeated, half of Europe did fall under communist rule for the next 60 years. In the 1930s, in the lead up to Munich, British politicians were well aware that this was a possible outcome if they went to war with Germany. Several years prior to Munich, during Hitler's reoccupation of the Rhineland, Neville Chamberlain remarked that at that time, France, quote, might succeed in crushing Germany with the aid of Russia, but it would probably only result in Germany going Bolshevik, unquote. And then Harold Nicholson, a British member of parliament and loud opponent of negotiating with Hitler, wrote in a private letter, quote, we are thus faced either with repudiation of our pledged word, meaning to France, or the risk of war. Naturally, we shall win into Berlin, and he's writing in 1936, but what is the good of that? 
It would only mean communism in Germany and France, and that is why the Russians are so keen on it. Moreover, the people of this country absolutely refuse to have a war. We should be faced by a general strike if we even suggested such a thing. We shall therefore have to climb down ignominiously, and Hitler will have scored. And this letter fairly encompasses the conundrum that British politicians were facing. Before you go to war, you need to know what kind of victory you're trying to achieve. And as the years ticked on through the 1930s, this became less and less clear for the British. My point through, throughout all of this has not been to claim that the British policy of negotiating with Hitler was necessarily the right choice. Rather, I'm simply trying to point out that even in hindsight, it's not self-evident what was the right choice, and we unfairly misrepresent British policy when we denounce it as appeasement. They created a foreign policy that attempted to reflect their past experience and their present limitations. And whatever we may think of the choices they made in the 1930s, we cannot claim that British politicians allowed evil to triumph simply by doing nothing. Knowing that Hitler was an evil dictator that needed to be dealt with did not tell them how best to deal with him. And furthermore, in 1938, Hitler was not the only evil dictator that needed to be dealt with. In 1938, Stalin was also expansionistic and had killed far more people than Hitler had. Yet, when Hitler and Stalin both invaded Poland, Britain went to war with one and not the other. And yet we call it appeasement when Britain negotiated with Hitler and compromise when they allied with Russia. If we want to level charges of moral culpability for making Hitler's conquest of Europe possible, we should instead perhaps level it at those countries that actually allied with Hitler, countries such as Russia. Or perhaps we should direct outrage at those countries like Poland, Hungary, or Romania that, while not necessarily allied with Hitler, at least joined in with him in conquering their neighboring countries. Or we should turn to those individuals that cheered on the march of fascism such as Oswald Mosley. These people and nations either knowingly aided the Nazis or took advantage of their expansion to benefit themselves at the expense of others. So in conclusion here, we have created a myth of Munich that simplifies and dumbs down the historical narrative. My hope here has been to demonstrate the actual complexity leading up to Munich and the difficult decisions that British politicians faced. One question that might arise from this, though, is, is it so shocking that we've overly simplified the historical narrative? After all, this is what we do as humans. We create myths. So is this a problem? Um, and I would say it certainly does become a problem when we fail to realize that these are myths. When we become content with just stopping at caricatures and oversimplifications, and when we fail to realize that myth tells us more about the present than it does about the past. Um, and this is how we end up with narratives such as like, the 1619 Project. This brings me back to Peter Hitchens' concern that we suffer from Munich syndrome, and why I think the myth of Munich is so particularly problematic, because we use the supposed lesson of Munich as a call for action today. Munich Syndrome asks us to not look deeper at these past events and then asks us to apply that thought, thoughtlessness to the present. We don't have time for complexity. We don't have time for thoughtfulness. Take action now. Hitler is always coming. 
again, a question that might come up, uh, do we really suffer from not being cautious enough today? Is that really our weakness? And I think if we're to take any lesson from recent events, it's that we love charging thoughtlessly into a good crisis. And Munich has become the clarion call. It's become a tool, not for promoting thoughtfulness, but as a bludgeon for ending conversation in the name of fear. It demands that we blindly follow our panicked thought leaders, and the image of Munich has become even more potent now that every social crisis is declared a war. The war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on terror, the war on COVID, the war on gun violence, the culture wars. So I would like to argue that the real lesson of Munich is beware of men bearing historical fables as a call to action. Thank you.